Dude, please. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Ghost. Amen. It is likely when St. Matthew calls the woman in the Gospel today a woman of Canaan, that he has in mind a reference to the ancient Canaanites, whom Old Testament Israel drove out of the land in order to, um, to inhabit under God's command after the, after the exodus and the wilderness wanderings. And it raises the question, in the Old Testament, the Israelites drove out the Canaanites and uh, eliminated them, essentially, or were supposed to, they didn't really do that, part of their failure. So part of the, the question, therefore, in the Gospel is, how would Jesus interact with her? Would he treat this Canaanite woman the same way God treated the Canaanites in the Old Testament. This woman had heard about Jesus. She had this issue uh, with her daughter. And she heard about Jesus and come, came to him for help. And she uh, knew that he was the Messiah or confessed that he was the Messiah of Israel, Lord, Son of David. When someone says Son of David in the Bible, they're saying, I believe you're Israel's Messiah and asked him for help. And Jesus uh, entered into interaction with her on the basis of this. So um, the way Jesus interacts with her indicates the difference between his ministry and the ministry of Old Testament Israel and the conquest of Canaan. Jesus came to seek and save that which was lost, whereas Old Testament Israel was, at least in the first instance, called to drive out the Canaanites. However, the distinction is not that simple. That leads us to sometimes the false idea that the Old Testament God was this mean guy who used to kill people, and Jesus is this God of love who just went around being nice. <laughs> God called Old Testament Israel to go into the Promised Land, drive out the Canaanites, and establish the kingdom or an outpost of the kingdom here on earth because the Canaanites were bad. It was, it was in judgment. The Bible said he waited 400 years till their sin became full. And righteousness, if God is love, love does not avoid judgment. It's not loving to allow evil to continue indefinitely without consequence. For example, in a modern reference, very few people now would say that, for example, ISIS is not worthy of some kind of judgment. And if we don't acknowledge the existence of evil that sometimes is judged, we don't understand the reality of the world we live in. Israel was to drive out that, those nations, the Canaanites, in judgment and establish Israel there as an outpost. But once Israel established themselves in the Promised Land, their vocation changed. God wanted Israel to be a light to lighten the Gentiles. The idea was that God would establish his outpost of the kingdom in the middle of these pagan nations. And by their holiness, by their separateness, they would bear witness to these pagan nations and they would be drawn to Israel's faith. It is a vocation Israel failed because, as the Old Testament tells us, rather than being a holy people, rather than being a light to these nations, they adopted the, the practices of the nations around them. They got drawn into paganism to compromise. So at the end of the Old Testament, the judgment that God enacted on the Canaanites 
He enacted on his own people, removed them from the promised land and sent them away into exile. We get a sense of the genuine vocation of Israel in our Old Testament lesson this morning from morning prayer. It's a lesson from uh, King Solomon's prayer of dedication of the temple. In 1 Kings chapter 8, I believe it is, Solomon dedicates the temple with a, a long prayer where he says essentially, when such and such happens, and we turn and pray towards this place here. And he says in, in this morning's lesson, when a foreigner who's not of your people comes to you because they'll hear that you're great. When they, that foreigner comes and turns towards this temple and prays, hear in heaven and do according to whatever that foreigner asks of you so that all the nations of the world will know that you are God. The gospel today is a, a rather specific fulfillment of that prayer. A foreigner, this woman of Canaan, hears of the God of Israel, comes to Jesus. Solomon talked about praying towards the temple. Jesus is the new temple. The temple was the place where God dwelt in Israel. Now, Jesus is the Word made flesh, God with us. This foreigner prays towards him. He hears and does according to all she asks. The woman of Canaan provides a model for us to look at in the life of prayer of how we are saved from judgment and how we come to uh, connect with Israel's God. The key thing about the woman of Canaan is that she had no right to talk to Israel's God. She was a foreigner, not an Israelite. And as a foreigner, the reason that the Canaanites were there, they were idol worshippers. And it's apparent that this woman had some of that going on in her life. She had a daughter who was harassed by a demon. And this is the kind of thing one picks up when one is worshipping things that you ought not to be worshipping. So she comes to him without a sense of entitlement, and that's the essence of faith. That you come to God, and it's throughout our liturgy, we're not worthy to come to this table trusting in our own righteousness, but in thy mercy. But the problem with religious people over time is we feel you know, entitled. Like, look how well I said that. So God must like the way I look in church. And, and the, the religious tendency over time is to go from a sense of, of not being entitled, of depending upon God's mercy to the sense that because I've you know, been in church for a while, I've been a Christian for 10, 20 years, because I know more than someone else, I'm entitled a little bit more than, than, than another is. And that's what we see in the gospel. The disciples tell them, you know, get away. She's not us. She doesn't deserve what we get, because we're Israel. But her, the pattern of her prayer reveals for us lessons about her own life of prayer that are significant. The first is she comes as an unentitled person, depending upon God's mercy. But she begins her prayer, she has a need, and we all come to God with needs. Generally, we need to be saved. Specifically, we have intercessions, needs in life. Help, need God's help in a circumstance, need an answer to a certain prayer. The first instructive thing about this encounter she has is, is the first thing Jesus does is nothing. He answered her not a word. 
and his disciples said, send her away, she's bothering us. Have we ever prayed, begun our, to pray about something and feel that God's not listening, and actually God's people actually discourage us rather than encourage us? The question at that point in time is test. Is this real faith? Will, will she continue to pray even though she's facing obstacles? The dialogue continues with Jesus, Jesus essentially saying, I'm, I'm not sent to save you. And it's not right to take your children's food, that which belongs to Israel, and give it to the dogs, which is what Jewish people call Gentiles. All these discouragements were opportunities for her to walk away and say, I guess this, is, this God I thought would help me is, is really just a mean guy. He's not going to answer but she didn't do that. She continued to persevere in our prayer. That's a central lesson of prayer for us. When we ask God for something, how long are we going to ask God? You know, put our calendar, two months of prayer. See what God's got for us. See how it's going then. We'll get, ah, give up, move on. This one was going to ask until she got an answer. And in the, in the, 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 the other significant point about the prayer is it's not just what she's asking Jesus, it's what Jesus is doing in her through this prayer. He's bringing her from that sort of distant place of Lord have mercy, bringing her closer to him, to a slightly more humble place. At the end of the story, she's flat on her face at Jesus' feet. And that takes a great deal of humility. That we'd expect... She, she, she knew she was an outcast. She knew she didn't belong there. Probably the, the factor in her prayer that was significant was it was her daughter. When her mother's praying for a daughter, you go to great lengths. She, so she, she went all, and, and, and she ends up flat on her face, and one might expect at that point in time, everyone just laugh. Ha ha, look at this woman. And just at the point where we think the ridicule might get to the extreme, Jesus says, Great is thy faith. There are only two people he says that about in the New Testament. This woman and the centurion who believed that Jesus can heal his servant without even coming to his house. In our life of prayer, this is what God does to us. He brings us to a state of greater dependency. We begin with what we think is faith, but it's, it's sort of comfortable reverence. Get on our knees, nice kneeler, Lord help me. And in the silence and in the conversation we have, he draws more and more into a state of dependence and humility. Because our faith, though we say we believe, we trust in a lot of other things. We trust in our possessions. We turn to uh, our appetites to fulfill us. We trust in, we, we, we have all these other things that we depend upon, that we're used to controlling things with. And to the life of prayer, Jesus brings us to a place of, dependency and prostration. The paradox is we have to get there for him to be able to give us what we want. We have to have faith in order for God to respond to our, to our faith. And one of the reasons that we don't often feel God's presence in our life is that we're so, we're so dependent on other things that we're not dependent upon him. And this is the purpose of the life of prayer. And when we come to the point we finally are surrendered, 
and we're able to say, Thy will be done, is the point where God says to us, Be unto thee according to thy word. The key point in this about the life of prayer is that most prayer is not answered because people stop. And the essential ingredient of genuine faith is perseverance. How long are we going to pray? How long are we going to come to the altar and, and, and pray and ask God to change us to the resurrection, until he actually completes the work? How long are we going to pray for those things in our lives that we want him to come into uh, and, and, and change and, and impact? And as we pray, are we willing to be changed? Or are we just asking God to sort of you know, do what we want him to do? We enter into that dialogue that we ask God and he works in us. We must persevere. Most prayers not answers people stop. Horizons of prayer should be thought of in terms of months and years. And when we persevere in life for prayer, we'll often wake up five years later and go, oh, I was praying for that and I have it now. And by the way, as I'm praying for it, I'm in a new place in my life because God has done something in me through my prayer. There's a missionary point about today's gospel too, that we are both the woman of Canaan who comes to Christ for healing without entitlement and is led into a position of surrender to which prayer is answered, but we're also Christ. We're the body of Christ, and people come to church. People come to us, to our body, seeking God, seeking grace from God. And so are we like the disciples who discourage those who maybe don't fit, we think they're not worthy, or are we open? Do we, do we invite people in who may seem not to qualify? The essential point of admission is we are called to pass on what we ourselves have received. If we take our liturgy seriously, we approach God unworthy, in our unworthiness and in our sin, and God receives us and forgives us, when we invite others, we're saying, come, see what I see. Now, there are two extreme errors as we apply, as we apply the idea of mission to the idea that we're inviting the, the outsider in. One is the error of, of Israel in the Old Testament, or, or not in the Old Testament, really in the New Testament, the Pharisees, where the, the church is seen as this elect righteous group criticizing all those bad people out there. That's a tendency for the church today, to sit here self-righteously and talk about all the evils out there in the world as though we were the righteous and, and opening no doors for the wounded to come in. On the other extreme is the idea that we're going to just come in without being sorry for sin or any real faith and just say, God, just come in, sit down. God doesn't really care what you're doing. He just loves you. Jesus required a lot of the woman of Cain. She had to acknowledge who he was, son of David. She had to had, go through a, a season of purification or a time of purification of her faith. So when we call people in, we're not calling people just to come in. We're calling people to faith in Jesus Christ and repentance. And that's the main point about the gospel is that what makes somebody part of God's people is faith in Jesus Christ. And that's the distinction between 
those who are on the outside and those who are on the inside? Do we put our, are we sorry for our sins and do we put our faith in Jesus Christ? And when anybody comes to us with sorrow for sin and faith, even if it's just a beginning faith, we need to open and be open to ministry to people regardless of whether they, they fit, regardless of whether they're uh, properly uh, whatever it is that we might, we might find the need to be. So it's a story about faith that we're supposed to put our faith in Jesus and we're supposed to share this faith with others who come to him. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Ghost. Amen. Amen.